Welcome to the Ark Stories Podcast. Ark Stories are true, personal, and told in person at Ark Stories events by the people who live them. Our podcast brings recordings of those stories straight to you for your listening enjoyment. I'm your host, story coach, Chris Kinsley. Most of us have to work for a living. In fact, if you consume podcasts like I do, then chances are you're listening to this right now, either on your way to work or as you're headed back home at the end of the day. And when it comes to our work, the dream, of course, I mean, the absolute dream is to find someone who will pay us to do something that we'd honestly do for free just because we enjoy it and love it so much. Well, today we're bringing you two stories where our storytellers have done just that. They've turned labors of love into ways to make a living. In this first one, our storyteller's job directly involves labor, but I don't mean just any physical effort. No, her job is actually all about the work of childbirth. From an event we hosted around Mother's Day where our theme was Wonder Women, Stories About Mothers, here's storyteller Kaylee Mayer. Um, yesterday, actually, I attended my hundredth childbirth. Um, it was great, but that's not the story I'm going to tell. The story I'm going to tell is the, out of a hundred births, only one baby has almost come in my car. And it wasn't one of my own, because I have two children. Um, it was the second Tuesday in March of 2014, and I know it was the second Tuesday because I was going to Birth Stories, uh, which is a group that I help uh, facilitate, and we tell birth stories, so it's a lot like this, but it's all birth. Um, <laughs> anyway, and uh, I had gotten a call from a mom that morning saying, I think something's going on, I'm not really sure, we'll be in touch. And I got to birth stories and I realized I didn't have my phone and I have this mom percolating and it's a really big deal if you're a doula and you don't have your phone, that's your whole business. So I rushed home with two kids and as soon as I walked in the door, we kind of got settled and 10 minutes later, I got a call from the mom again and she said, oh, I think my water's broken. I was like, okay, so today is probably the day. Could be tomorrow, you never know, birth's unpredictable. But um, I said, that's great. She's, I said, um, you know, how are you feeling? You ready for me to come and be with you? She said, no, I'm, I'm driving, I'm going to get my daughter from daycare. Um, I'll, I'll let you know. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's unusual. But uh, I guess that was probably about noon. Uh, so I called my husband to tell him, you know, something's going to happen. He's like, well, I don't, just let me know, because it could be an hour from now, or it could be at 5 o'clock tonight. We don't know. Um, but about 20 minutes after I got that call from her, I got a call from her husband. So if you're not a doula, um, you should know that when you get a call from the husband after you've been talking to the wife um, or from um, mom's other support people, that things are starting to get a little more serious. So he's talking to me, and, uh, and we're talking. I said, okay, you know, he said, I think, uh, I think she's ready for you to come over. She's just in the tub. It's very relaxed. And I was like, okay, okay. So I can probably be there in about 30 minutes, you know. And then I hear her in the background going like this. Uh, and I was like, 
Uh, I said, do you want me to just meet you at the hospital? It sounds like, you know, if that's her, and I, they don't have, like, you know, uh, cows or anything. Um, but there's a sound that moms make in labor when it's about time to go to the hospital if you want to have the baby in the hospital, and most people here do, and this is an important thing to note. Anyone who helps a mom have a baby out of the hospital in Alabama could go to jail and I'm not interested in going to jail, and most people aren't interested in going to jail. So it's very important that we try to get to the hospital to have the, have the baby. Um, and that's what she wanted to do, so that's what I wanted to help her do. Anyway, he said, no, no, she really wants you to come here first. And I said, okay. So my husband and I cross each other. You know, he's coming and I'm going out. I gun it across town. Um, her mother-in-law meets me at the front door and she says, oh, I'm so glad that you're here because I think she's really hurting. And so I said, okay, we'll see how things are going. And I walk in the front door and she's sort of leaning on the back of her, uh, the love seat in her living room, face is flushed and uh, she's looking down. I think a contraction had just ended and she cuts her eyes at me like really wide. She's like, I think I'm gonna have to have an epidural. And I said, <laughs> I said, I can't give you an epidural. <laughs> We're gonna have to go to the hospital for that. Um, and then I noticed her husband stood up and he didn't have a shirt on. And that's unusual too. And he said, well. <laughs> He's like, I'll just go get dressed and then we can go. And I said, good, that sounds great. And so, <laughs> So he's gone. Her, I don't know. Her mother-in-law was somewhere. Um, this is funny. I found out. I found out later that uh, he actually went back to his home office and started working again. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm I'm sitting there with her, like kind of kneeling on the ground, and she's trying to help her to get into a comfortable position while we're waiting to go to the hospital so the baby can can come out. Um, anyway, uh, and uh, so helping her get into a position, she gets on her side. And the next contraction, sort of at the, at the peak, because they're kind of like a wave. So at the peak, she goes, and I was like, in my mind, I said, oh, shit. Because if, if you don't know what that sound means, it means that the mom is starting to push when she's not medicated. Okay, um, as I said, okay, I said, um, Chelsea, do you want to have your baby at the hospital? She said, yes. I said, then we need to go. <laughs> Still just me and her, though. Okay, so I run around the house like a crazy person. I said, hello. And I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. Because, you know, doula is what we do when we come in. Like, we, we take the energy down and we calm everybody down. <laughs> but there was not enough stress in this situation. <laughs> So I said, we need to go. And then I said, we need to go now. And so finally, so I hear someone, and then, but I was like, they sound far away. I cannot wait for them. So uh, I, I run back to her, and I get her off the couch, and we're kind of like slow dancing baby steps to the door, okay? Just like, just like this, like eyes locked. 
Um, I said, we're gonna make it to the door. We get to the, the, the doorstep, like the doorway where hat, like I'm out and she's in the house and she cuts her eyes at me again. And she says, I wanna ride with you. And uh, at that point in my career, I had never had anyone in my car in labor before except for me. And I haven't had anyone in my car since. Um, <laughs> But I knew that this was serious. So another thing that you need to know is that her husband is legally blind and he does not drive. Um, her her mother-in-law, the reason she was there is she was gonna be taking them to the hospital. So this was, this was her second baby, um, obviously. Um, and uh, the plan was that she was gonna drive them and that her mother was gonna come and stay with their older child. Um, because their first birth had been kind of long and I think there's an expectation that this would be the same. But at this point, this is about an hour since her water's been broken. So um, it's going a little faster. So no one else to stay with the older daughter. So mother-in-law's gotta stay with the older daughter and mom, she did not feel safe riding with her husband who does not normally drive. So <laughs> like I, I, I said, oh, okay. Cause she had this very, it was a very serious look you guys. And if you can't see me like, Come see me later, but it's like this, this look that moms get that says, I am in labor, and this is the truth. <laughs> um, so I'm like, I had all this junk in the back seat of my car. Like, there were straight pins back there. I had all this sewing stuff. So I'm like scraping it off the back so she can get in. And so she climbs in, and I, her husband's walking out the door with his shirt on. And um, it's important. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I said, hey, there's plenty of room in the back, but you can ride up front with me too if you want. He said, oh no, I, uh, I think she really wants to have a car there, so I'm gonna drive. And I was like, see ya. <laughs> so I gunned it out of their uh, driveway and um, have it mapped out on my phone because I haven't driven from this part of town to this particular hospital before and it says 10 minutes and I was like, no. We're gonna make it in seven to eight. Um, and, uh, and I also realized, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going so fast. I don't know if they've had a chance to call the doctor. So I called one of my doula partners. I said, can you please call this hospital and let them know that we're coming? And then here's the mom in the back going, Ugh! and I said, and she is pushing, so they need to have a chair ready for us, please, please. And so um, we're driving and I'm cutting around cars and, um, She's in the back seat going, oh, and I'm like, okay, just breathe out with that pressure, okay? Nice, slow breaths, but in here, I'm thinking, oh my God, like, where can I pull my car over? Like, starting to think, like, 100 feet ahead, like, if I have to deliver this baby, it's like, do I have any hand sanitizer? Crap, I don't have any gloves, what am I gonna do? Because I've actually, I've delivered three babies in another state, okay? Um, in another state, I was like, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> and I want her to be in the hospital. So um, finally, uh, we were two minutes. I'm just talking. I was like, okay, five minutes. We got three minutes to go. Breathe out. Oh, I'm trying. You're doing great. Um, so we pull into the hospital parking lot. And uh, I just like, I have flashers going. And I tear open the back door. And she said, I don't think I can get up. And I was like, I think you can do it. <laughs> And uh, there was not a chair waiting for us. Like, I hoped there would be. There was nobody. It was deserted. It was just, just the two of us. So here we go again. Like, 
slow, you know, slow dancing baby steps through the door, and we made it to in front, right in front of the elevators to go up, and we got stuck. Not in the elevator. We didn't get stuck in the elevator, but she couldn't. She was not taking another step, and that was it. I was like, okay, all right. I was like, okay, listen, we're here. I was like, we, we just have to press the button. And finally, someone, like a maintenance worker came up, and she said, do you need help? And I said, yes. <laughs> Because her husband still wasn't there yet. It was just us. Um, she said, okay, I'll call upstairs to, to get a chair for you. That would be great. Um, I said, thank you so much. And so we'd have a couple more contractions there. And I'm thinking, okay, if I have to get down on the floor to, like, you know, make, if the baby starts to come, then, you know, I was like, I can do it. I don't want to do it, but I can do it. Um, but finally... Uh, <laughs> Uh, like there's this whole team, team of nurses with a chair, and the dad is walking behind them. And I'm like, yes! It was the most exciting moment of my life. Not, I mean, not, you know, but it was really exciting. <laughs> um, so they, uh, they get her in the chair, and they take her upstairs, and I parked my car, and I didn't want to get towed. And I made it upstairs. I think I might have teleported. I have no memory of like going up the elevator or anything. But about 20 minutes after we got into the room, that beautiful baby was born. So we made it. Um, and uh, afterwards, um, she was like, you know, had the, had the baby. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm really worried that she is going to be traumatized by this. Because sometimes we're not expecting to have a two-hour labor. It, it's kind of traumatizing. You didn't get to do all those things you wanted to do, like, you know, play your music and have your aromatherapy. <laughs> uh, but I, I looked over at her, and she was beaming, and she looked beautiful, and she said, I can't believe I just did that. I said, of course you did. <laughs> That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> In addition to serving families as a doula, Kaylee Naylor is also a wife and mother to two kids of her own. You can find her and learn more about her services at birthwiseinbirmingham.com. If you like hearing stories of people who have found purpose in their vocation, or even those who, like many of the rest of us, are struggling to do so, then you should join us for our next live event. It is coming up next week on Saturday, April 23rd at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme will be On the Clock, Stories from the Workplace. You can get your tickets and all the details at our website, arcstories.com. Now, even when we think we know what we want to do with our lives, we sometimes don't actually realize what it is about ourselves that is driving that desire. In fact, it is often only once we get into it that we come to see there might actually be a much better way to pursue our passion. And that was certainly true for our next storyteller. This one was recorded at an event where our theme was Back to School Stories from Around the Classroom. Here's storyteller Marshall Paul. So I knew um, I was going to be an educator for the rest of my life uh, when I realized just how different I was from Ronald. See, Ronald uh, lived, and he may still live, um, in the housing community just down the street in Southtown. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I got to know Ronald because I helped run an after-school program in that community for a number of years, and, and I also learned that I was very similar to Ronald. 
I mean, I looked a lot like him. I enjoyed some of the same music he enjoyed. We ate a lot of the same food. We played ball with one another after school in between tutoring. Um, and we had the same dream. When, when I was eight, I also wanted to be a professional basketball player. Um, and, uh, but it, the difference that I learned uh, that I had between uh, him and me was when he came to after school um, and he had handwritten homework from his school. Uh, and it read, and I quote, Ronald had him 45 cent. And Ronald went to Munchies, which is a store down the street, and bought him a soda for 32 cent. How much did Ronald have left? And I know there's so much that goes into that, understanding that, that homework, right? And why that there's differences, that he couldn't even read that homework. Um, and I knew that in that moment, uh, yes, there were differences between Ronald and me, and, and I wanted to do whatever it took to play my part to ensure that, that Ronald realized the limitless potential that he had, that I know that there are some teachers in this room that know that kids like Ronald in Birmingham and all across the world have, they have limitless potential, and that this was a lie. This experience that I was having in that moment was a lie, and I wanted to figure out what could I do, what role do I play um, in ensuring that Ronald realizes his limitless potential. And so this set me on a journey, and uh, I realized that I wanted to teach. And the only way a business and a sociology major can teach um, is through an alternative teaching program. And so this program led me to Washington, D.C., um, and I was a third grade teacher uh, in D.C. public schools. Um, and there are so many lessons that I could tell you about the experiences that I had that allowed me to learn how to bridge the world between me and my students. I could tell you about um, <laughs> the story of Malachi, uh, who in defiance, because uh, I wasn't giving him what he wanted, um, crapped his pants on purpose just to prove a point. <laughs> but that's the, the whole story. So I, <laughs> I, I just not really, I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> I was like working with a small group of students. I was like, no, you're not. And, but anyway, and he, and he was. Um, <laughs> Uh, I could tell you about on my fourth day of school uh, when this young teacher from Florida, uh, there was an earthquake, and some of my students had been through an earthquake before, and I had not, and they took over the classroom, and there was a world of differences between them and me in that moment. Um, but it was shaky, and that was about the end of that story, too. So um, I don't think that would be good to explain the differences uh, and my experience of learning how to bridge the differences between me and my students and to make sure that they realize their potential. And so the, the best story, the moment that changed my life is the moment that I was sitting um, in Bishesh's uh, dining room table. And like a good Tarantino movie, I've got to go backwards and tell you how I got there, right? Um, and so, uh, as I mentioned, I was, a, I was a third grade teacher in public school and DC public schools. And as many teachers in this room will tell you, it's the hardest profession in the world. Um, it's especially difficult when you're teaching in the nation's lowest performing school district, which DC was at that moment. And so just like uh, the earthquake, relationships in my classroom were pretty shaky. Um, and teachers will also tell you that's the key. You got to know your kids. You got to believe in them, you got to trust them, you got to use relationships in order to make sure that they're achieving um, their potential. And so I didn't have the best relationship with my students, um, but a relationship I did have that was really strong was between me and Mr. S. 
Uh, Mr. S was also, uh, uh, he's a male, obviously. He's a man of color, like me. So we had a lot of things in common, not just that, but we also loved sriracha. Um, and he uh, would routinely, he was a great teacher, and he'd routinely come into my classroom, observe me, give me feedback, trying as a first-year teacher to be a good teacher. He'd give me this feedback, um, and, and it, was, it was really meaningful. It, it, he taught me everything I know about being a teacher. Um, but it was in this moment, uh, in my first, it was right after the earthquake, and uh, Kayla is in the back throwing pencils, cursing me out, laughing at me because I have no control of this classroom. Um, and he is, his kids are next door, and he's in my classroom observing me. And my kids go to lunch, and I walk over to his classroom, and I'm like, dude, like, how do you, you've been doing this for a really long, like, how do you do this? Like, I'm ready to quit. I'm not going to quit, but I'm ready to quit. And while you're in my classroom observing me, like, your kids are self-monitoring their progress on an objective that you gave them while you're in my classroom attending to what sounds like recess. And like, so how do you do this? And he just looks right at me, and I'll never forget it. He said, man, if you don't realize that your kids spend 85% of their time away from the classroom, that their parents are their first teachers, and if you don't leverage that every single day in your classroom, it doesn't matter what you do. And so I set out on a mission of doing home visits for every one of my students, making sure that what was happening in that 85% was coming to the 15. And if you want to know, there's, there's math out there that proves that. It blew my mind because like, I'm always here. How come kids aren't always here? But I went out on this mission, and I could tell you all these lessons that I learned, right, about like going to um, Nick's house. And uh, my wife is here, and she went with me, and she can tell you. Nick's mom has every Mickey Mouse figurine in the world. And it was crazy to walk into that, right? <laughs> It's also crazy to go um, not to a home because your students don't have a home and to walk in a neighborhood um, and to, for, to process that, that world between me and those students and go back um, to the classroom the next day. But as I mentioned, this is about Bashesh and that dining room table. So I got to tell you about Bashesh. He's a, a, an immigrant from Nepal. He just immigrated, he and his family just immigrated to D.C. just over a year ago. So he doesn't speak much English. But um, the, the moment I met him, and my only memory of, of Bishesh is, is with a smile on his face. Um, and he walked into my classroom, this eight-year-old, pants up to here until I told him, bro, that ain't cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's this happy kid. He's always smiling. And because he doesn't speak much English, he's always drawing. He's a gifted artist, limitless potential. He's always drawing to express himself. And he always would do this thing, which at the beginning of the year was annoying, but then it became kind of sentimental. And he'd always follow me around the classroom and tap me on the shoulder and say, like, hey, look, look, you know? It's like, this is math, but this is a drawing. Um, and that was his way of doing multiplication and division. Um, but the, the memory I have of, that describes um, Bishesh and his ability was when we were doing um, autobiographies in my classroom. And we were uh, telling our story and comparing it to a civil rights leader somewhere in the world. And so he drew his story immigrating from Nepal to D.C. And he was comparing himself um, to Mahatma Gandhi and his journey along the Salt Sea. He's eight. Um, and I was like tapping me on the shoulder to show me that. And he goes, I have a voice. And I was like, you get it. Like, you get it. That's awesome. And so... With that in mind, this joyous kid who's got a story, who's got a voice, this is the things that I'm thinking about as I'm anticipating visiting his home and this dining room table, trying to bridge this world between me and Bashesh. But two weeks before his home visit, I get an email. Not a letter, not a let's sit down as a faculty. I get an email 
from our administration saying that our school was shutting down. Um, and it was because the leaders of the school um, had been laundering millions of dollars. They had created a nonprofit company um, to be the facility managers of the school. They were laundering millions of dollars and they got caught. And so our school was shutting down. Um, and this was right before I was visiting Bishesh's home. So I'm walking, I'm riding my bike to his, uh, his apartment. I'm carrying that with me, but I'm balancing it off with this really excitement because this kid's so joyful, right? And I, I, I ride my bike up to his apartment. I meet his dad um, in the main area near the stairwell. And I remember, this is random, it's not really important to the story, but I remember him being barefoot. And I remember that being so normal. Like I just, I remember like, yeah, of course, like maybe I should take my shoes off. Um, and it was a lot more normal than me carrying my bike through the stairwell as we tried to make small talk. That was um, not successful. Um, and I, I, I did leave my bike outside of his, ha of his apartment. And I walk into this 400-square-foot apartment, um, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed with what I later find out is the smell of, uh, of goat curry and more types of rice than I knew existed. There's puff rice and dried rice and steamed rice. I mean, it was awesome. Um, and so I go and I sit down at his dining room table, which also serves um, as his bed. Um, and it's adjacent to his mom and dad's bed. And, and out walk from the only other room besides the bathroom, out walk the matriarch and the patriarch of the family. And they all immigrated to, to Washington, D.C. together. And so we, we're sitting there, and I'm really excited because I get to hear um, their stories. Home visits are not punitive. They're not, let's, I'm going to tell you what your son's doing in, your, in my classroom, and it's a checkup. It's, how can I take this and bring it back? Um, and so I'm sitting there between the world and me of all these stories of how they got here. And it, and it goes like this. They, they left Nepal in a small village to come to D.C. because they wanted to have a better life for, for Baraj, his older brother, and Bishesh. And they immigrated specifically to Washington, D.C. because they knew that being in the nation's capital, the most powerful city in the world, their access to services in the nation's capital would grant them citizenship quicker than a smaller or a, a city elsewhere. And they immigrated to this specific neighborhood because the school that I was teaching at had three Nepalese families, and they knew that that small community of people would be a safe haven for their kids. So they're telling me all this, and I'm realizing that at some point, we're going to talk about it, right? And so then they ask me, Baraj is, uh, he's, he's in fifth grade, he's going to sixth grade next year. What schools in this neighborhood do you think that he could go to so that Bashesh can stay at your school and you can watch over him? So here I am, again, between the goat curry and the 400 square feet and the, the, the floor I can now feel sitting on the, the bed. I tell him. Like, I'm, our school is shutting down. Bishesh won't go to school there in, next year. And what was, you know, smiling faces immediately turned to, to fear, and it looked a lot like anger um, because the school hadn't said anything. They only said something to us, and, and I knew that they hadn't said anything to families, but uh, really, I didn't have a job next year. I didn't care. And I wanted to tell them what the school should have told them and, and what the school should have never even done. And so... As we began to discuss options, um, I realized there was really nothing I could do. I mean, there's nothing in that apartment that I could do. So after we finished the tea, um, I, uh, I left, I shook hands with everybody and left. And this is a Wednesday, and I have to go back to school Thursday and, and, and see Bishesh again. But I leave his 400-square-foot apartment and ride my bike three miles down to, uh, the road to our $2,000-a-month 400-square-foot apartment. And I am overwhelmed with the world that is in between 
Bishesh, and me. And it was in that moment when I got home that I realized that there shouldn't be a world between me and Bishesh. This is, this is my world. His story is, is my story. His journey is my journey, and it should be. And there are so many reasons that this world exists that makes it a world between him and me. But the reality is, like, this is my student. His future has a lot to do with me. And so for the next four months, um, although my administration was very upset that I said something, I didn't care, and I went um, for Bashesh and other students to different schools in the community that were good for the whole family. And um, in that year, um, Bashesh grew three years in reading, um, and he now speaks more languages fluently than I do. And he and Baraj are doing okay. They're at the same school. Um, and after my school shut down, um, I decided that uh, being an instructor wasn't for me. That doing whatever I could to figure out how to bridge this world in between students and me by being further and further convinced that this is our world. Our kids are our kids. Like there is no difference between Barrage's future and mine. And so now I get to go to work every day to make sure that, you know, students and parents and teachers and residents and folks like you and me treat our kids as our kids. And um, that's, that's what I'm convinced to do. So, so do me a favor. Follow me around, tap me on the shoulder, and make sure I keep doing that. Marshall Pollard is the Director of Community Partnerships for the Birmingham Education Foundation. You can find him on Twitter at Marshall Pollard and then learn more about all the great things he and the team are doing at edbirmingham.org. Now, before we go, I want to ask you, please subscribe to this podcast. That way you will never miss an episode. And also, please leave us a review on iTunes. It truly is a simple but extremely helpful way you can support all the good storytelling we are cultivating with ARC Stories. Plus, we love to hear from you and know what our audience thinks. And that being said, I want to say a huge thank you to MReady and ADOG722 for your recent reviews. It means the world to us. However, if you've left a review and I haven't thanked you yet, don't worry. There's sometimes a delay to them being posted to iTunes, and I definitely want to extend our appreciation to you once it shows up. And that's our show. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Art Stories podcast. I've been your host. I'm Chris Kinsley. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley, and Art Stories is at all those places too, at Art Stories. This podcast is produced by Taylor Robinson and myself. Francesco D'Andrea composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Senia Etheridge, Aaron Moon, Jake Brantley, and Nate Dreger. Don't forget to get your tickets for our next live event. They are available on our website, arcstories.com. There you can also listen to other stories. You can stay up to date with everything we have going on. And, of course, you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?